we miss so many great opportunities when we only hire people that look like us or people that believe like us or people that act like us. And it's distinct and deeply connected is the oneness that we're supposed to be building in this country. Okay, today's guest on the Gravity Podcast is Chet Scott. Chet and his team at Built to Lead are leadership and development coaches for some of the most influential leaders across the city of Columbus and abroad. Chet's journey started when he left CompuServe after 20 years and started working with influential leaders. He woke up in 1993 and discovered his life's opus. He founded Built to Lead in 2002 and began his builder's journey His content, style, writing, and nonsense approach to leadership is real, raw, and direct. And in his own words, he is a friend to a few and a truth teller to many with a true love for the work he does. Chet is also my builder and has been my coach for over the last, oh, probably close to 15 years now and has been incredibly influential in my work and my life. And we'll talk about all of that on this week's podcast. All right. Well, we are here today with Chet Scott, Chet Scott of Built to Lead, who is my coach and dear friend. And this is just really uh, something I've been looking forward to, Chet, for a while um, because we've had such a beautiful run together. And, you know, the work that you do has just been so transformative for me. Uh, it's just fun to kind of have an opportunity to uh, have you on the podcast and hear what what you call uh, your builder's journey. This you know part of you know built to lead that's been so ingrained in the work uh, that we've done and that you do. We've been just saying telling people's full journey, their full life story, but you know the builder's journey is just a key component of of what you do. So it's even. It's even more exciting for me to have you here and tell your story. Well, likewise, it's good to be with one of my favorite friends and clients, Mr. Celebrity Podcast Man. <laughs> uh, so uh-huh. yeah, I think that this will be a fun hour or however long it is. It'll be fun for both. Yeah, That's good. So where do you want to start? Yeah, so let's start at the beginning. I want to really hear kind of early childhood, kind of what your family dynamic was like, kind of tell me a little bit about what you remember uh, about being a kid and your parents and your siblings and just kind of where in the in the world you were and what that looked like. Well, there's so much to tell. Uh, I had such a great childhood, but I think probably the best place to start is just to tell you about my mom and dad. Um, because yeah, great. that would be probably better than telling you about me. But they they both are so expressed in me. But uh, both of them grew up in western Kansas. One in my dad in Hayes, my mom in La Crosse. Both lived through the Dust Bowl in the Great Depression. My mom's dad left at five to go to California to make money and never came back. So her mom raised her from five and her brother from 10 with no income and dust coming in the house. And they just raised their own food and did it on the the little shack. And uh, my mom 
had to drink well water that colored her teeth and they still are colored to this day. So she won't smile and show you her teeth. And, uh, she's 95. So when they survived that, my dad survived Okinawa. So he survived the Dust Bowl of Depression. And then he got, when the war broke out, he volunteered for the Navy and they shipped him out to Okinawa. So he was a medic in Okinawa, which was known as Bloody Okinawa. And the fact that he survived that is just another miracle. I could tell you stories about that that would just make your mind bend. So the two of them were unlikely survivors of a really rough patch. And they came together. They were both medical. My mom was a nurse. My dad was a doc. So they met in a hospital, you know, perfect. And would get married and settle in Salina, Kansas after the war and start a family. Dad started a family practice. They wanted to have a family. They had three miscarriages. And then they had two babies that didn't live a day. Charles Godwin, David Michael are my two brothers who didn't make it a day. Most people would have given up. Mm. Everybody told them to give up, that you can't have kids. and This is a bad sign. So part of the reason why I'm so hopeful and I have a, a spirit of hope no matter what is that my parents both were very hopeful. And so they pressed on. And Catherine Ann, my oldest sister, was born in 1956. And since they had one that made it, they're like, let's do this again. <laughs> Mary Marie was born in 57. And they were like, okay, we got two healthy babies. Let's call it a day, mom said, you know, let's quit while we're ahead. And Chester Eugene Scott the first said, you know, I really would like to have a boy. And so he talked my mom into giving it another go. And so I came bursting on March 25th, 1959. And my dad was so thrilled that he just named me after him and said, make him the second, because I don't want him to be called junior. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so having parents like that, uh, I didn't realize it at the time. And I didn't realize it for many years. I didn't realize it until I left home, how fortunate I was to have resilient parents, examples, who were also just like, my dad was the kindest man still to this day I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And he was tough. He was resilient. But that man was so kind. Mm. And, and my mom was just determined, you know, like living through what she lived through. She gave me this determination that that combination really kind of just helped me get through being a kid and being little. I was really little as a, as a boy. I didn't grow for years and years. My mom kept telling me, don't worry about it, Chester, you'll grow. <laughs> and I made the freshman basketball team when I was 4'11". <laughs> and they had a waist shot, and it was just my head. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, so so tell me a little more, Chet, kind of about you. It is really uh, amazing to kind of hear your parents' stories. I love to kind of hear that you think about the times we're in, and you know, then you start to compare it to you know the the multiple 
challenging times, historic, you know, wars and, and depressions, you know, it's very, you know, interesting to kind of hear, you know, what others have gone through firsthand. And I'm wondering kind of as a kid, you know, talk a little bit more about like what, who you were, what you were like, and, and how you received that experience of their you know, as we say now, right, tough and tender mm. or the resiliency or the determination. Are those things that, you know, you you kind of can point back into those early years and kind of speak to, or is it more that you kind of in hindsight see that? Well, I never lacked confidence. I never lacked belief. And so I may have been this little thing But if you would see me at recess, I would kick your ass. (laughs) You know, if it was kickball, Uh I was going to round the bases. Even though I couldn't kick it that far, I was going to round the bases and you'd try to throw me out and there's no way you could get me. Uh And if we played football, I was going to compete my little butt off and nobody was too big for me to tackle. And I got beat up a lot and never, it just didn't, didn't phase me. So, and I think that was just came from, again, my mom and my dad, both just kindness and determination, like tough and tender. I saw from the two of them. Yeah. But I was not as evolved as my father. Like I, the kindness part took me a long time to pick up. Mm -hmm. The tough part came much more naturally. The kindness was in there and I was a great friend and my friends and, and I was friend with so many different, everybody. I didn't hang out with the popular crowd. I, I hung out with everybody. So I had this kindness in me that I just didn't know a stranger. Didn't matter where you were from. Like the, I'll still remember fifth grade. I had a Connie shoe box for my, kept on my school supplies. And one of the little elementary schools had closed down by us. And so the, their kids all came to our school. And I sat down first day of school in my, picked a chair, middle of nowhere. This big old kind of gangly dude I didn't know. None of my good friends sat next to me. You know, it was early and he took the seat right next to me. And I said, hey, what's your name? And he said, James. I said, what's your name? I said, Chester. And he goes, you got the funniest looking Connie shoebox. What is wrong with you? And I said, well, (laughs) you're one to talk. You look like Big Bird. (laughs) And to this day, Big Bird and I are still great friends. And every time I call, he says, hi, cheese ball. And I say, hey, bird. And we still laugh that, you know, that was just the way I was. Like, it didn't yeah. matter that he'd, uh, he was from another school. He just sat down and we just became fast friends. And I had friends like that. I had friends from every walk in the school and didn't think anything out of it. But yeah. when I got later in school, I realized that so many of my friends only hung out with the people in there, like played sport with them or their clique or their group. And I just, the kindness piece was just that I just happened to be curious about people and, and genuinely liked them all. Yeah. But I did want to compete with any and everybody too. So it was a weird combo. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing because, you know, we talk about um, kind of being built to lead, right? (laughs) So you know, there's a lot of work that goes into um, becoming of belief, 
right? To, to know what you believe, to act in alignment with your beliefs. I mean, this is, this is your work and we'll, we'll kind of, you know, hop in and out and get to that maybe later on. But you, you also sound like you were born with it maybe. And that there's also, you know, some real messaging or role modeling that you're getting, you know, within the family dynamic, you know, tell me a little bit about kind of where that belief came from at such a young age. I mean, this is before you're, you know, off to schools and, and, you know, um, centers for creativity and reading and learning about leadership and belief. Like you, you seem to kind of have this really early on. I did. And I contend the story I told you about my dad and my mom, like my dad was so, after being through having two boys that died in a day and then having two girls and all the death he saw as a medic in Okinawa and just being on the verge of being broken, um, to have finally get, uh, his dream was to just have another boy. And he was the greatest dad there he could have ever asked for. And so every day my dad made me feel like I was a gift to the freaking world. You know, he didn't tell me, hey, you know, um, he, he didn't care what I did or how I did it. He would come to everything I did. And he was just a supporter. And my dad was a doctor who was delivering babies and performing surgery. And my earliest memory was he was always with me. And he would always go out at night and shoot baskets with me in the dark. And he would never shoot. He would just rebound every shot and feed me pumpers, as he would call it. And so I just remember my dad just like giving me this belief that I could do anything because he was such a supporter. And my mom was, my mom would just tell me, you're going to grow. Don't let the boys tell you that you're a shrimp. Don't you worry about a thing. I'm not buying your clothes this year because they're going to outgrow them next year. And don't worry. It's next year's your year. You're going to grow. And she would just tell me that year after year. Then my sisters would make fun of me and, you know, wouldn't let me play with them and all that because I was too little. And my mom would just tell me, you're going to grow and you can do whatever you want. So I don't think I was born with it. I was just, that's what I meant by I was born so fortunate to have a mom and a father like that. I, and I didn't appreciate it then. And uh, it makes me sick to think about the, if there was a shame that I feel still to this day, it's the shame of not appreciating that in the moment. I just, it was such a great gift. And I just did not, I didn't understand it. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that makes sense. I mean, that's kind of why I asked is this, you know, in hindsight, because, you know, when you're a kid, you're just not thinking about that kind of stuff. You're focused on, whatever's right in front of you, that's your kind of level of thinking um, generally, you know? I mean, it's it's unfortunate. And maybe as we get older, we can recognize not to do that now, you know, to take it all in as we can, be aware, be uh, full of gratitude, because that's something that, you know, takes a little bit of learning in life to do, I think. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. So, okay. So let's talk, you know, as you start to move through into high school, kind of, you know, do you continue to kind of be that same person that's 
competitive yet um, kind and and open to all? What what kind of happens as you start to move on with your young adult life? You know, high school into college. Yeah, I would say that the more the same. I finally grew into that freshman year, sophomore, junior year. I grew almost eleven inches in the two years. You know, went from four eleven to five almost 5'11". And, uh, you know, not a lot. I mean, high school was, again, I hear people that had a horrible high school. I went to a school that was, we had every, you know, it was a small town, 40,000 middle of Kansas town. And my high school had every walk of life in it. And so you just, it was a great, even people think, oh, well, my gosh, that was probably a really limiting childhood because you were in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, man, I I had I had Mexican friends that were really close to me. I had little white friends like me, and I had black friends. I had rich friends. I had poor friends. I had people right in the middle. It was it was just an an eclectic mix, and I think that was really good for me. In a small town, I just I again I took that for granted. But it was really a high school was just this. I learned a lot about a lot of different kinds of people. I had really good friends. I told you about Bird. He's still a friend. I've got two other dear friends from that same time from high school. Um, just salt of the earth kind of people. They'd give you the shirt off their back. And so high school was, I don't know. I didn't. I played sports and I was involved. I was class president blah, 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 did a variety of things, <laughs> class clown. You know, I was never serious about school. I was a B student my entire career, you know, like just, I always just, my goal was to get a 3.0 wherever it was. And that's what I did. And, you know, my parents were always on me. My sisters got much better grades and I didn't care. Um, I didn't even want to learn. Like I wasn't even into learning. So it was when I started, when that flip, that switched flipped in my early 30s, my mom, I just remember her being so shocked and yeah. I, pleasantly so. I think she thought maybe that she had failed me, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing, you know, because you um, are such a avid learner now. Yeah. Um, you know, as long as I've known you and you say, you know, even back to your early 30s, yeah. you know, you you love to learn. Mm -hmm. You read, you know, you digest, you study um, different periods. I mean, history, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, what was it about kind of the disinterest in learning at that stage in your life? Because I, I kind of see this, you know, maybe as a um, problem in our school system, as a problem, you know, kind of in how we parent, um, that there there isn't this connection to learning in a way that is interesting and inspiring. And, yeah. and I don't know exactly what the answer is. Maybe we're we're not teaching the right subjects. Maybe it's just like the development of the brain at, at that age where. <laughs> you know, sports and whatever else maybe are more interesting for a lot of young boys. Um, what was it for you that you think you didn't have then that you did develop later in life? 
Well, I don't know that it's any one thing, but I will, I will tell you that I, I've always been very, if my, if I'm going to learn, there has to be a reason. Like if, if it's just to learn to get a grade, that was not a reason. So I just, that never interested me. When I took accounting in high school, Victor Klotz, I still remember the, the teacher. Victor Klotz explained at the beginning of the class why accounting mattered. And I always listened at the beginning to see if this would be, you know, a subject that I thought would matter. When he explained accounting and why that was so important, because you have to know debits and credits if you're going to run any business or if you're going to keep track of your own income, your own finance someday. This is really material. You need to understand finance. You need to understand the, the roots of accounting if you're going to understand. And I remember thinking, that makes some sense. I'm going to see what he's all about. And I ended up going in early. I would make the guy breakfast. I took a skillet in, a couple other girls and another buddy of mine. I don't know why we were so nuts, but this guy liked breakfast. So I would go in early before school, make the teacher breakfast. I'd make him bacon and eggs, hash browns, and he would spend time teaching us more of the basics of accounting. And I got into it and I got an A in the class, not because I made him breakfast, but because I actually wanted to learn it. Mm-hmm. And he made me want to learn it because yeah. he sold me up front on why it mattered. When I would go into biology and chemistry and all these other classes, I'd be like, what, what are we going to, well, who cares about a Bunsen burner? Like, yeah. who gives a, why are we ripping open some little animal and looking at that guy? I didn't see any point in it. And calculus, mm-hmm. I mean, geometry, I was like, nah. So mm-hmm. that, that, I think I, when I had a practical why, I got into it and, mm-hmm. and I remember my one English teacher in college who, again, at the beginning of class, gave a great why for why we should learn how to write papers and how to read good books. I, I bought her a why. And so I did really well in that class. Mm-hmm. And all these business classes that I had that I was going to be a business major just because my mom convinced me that that was a marketable career, I wasn't into it. Mm-hmm. I didn't really connect to, besides the accounting, the rest of the whole marketing and sales and learning all that. And I took all these different research classes. I went through the motions. Yeah. So when I went to the Center for Creative Leadership, when I got out, got a job, and got moving in my career and was forced to go to a, to a week-long program at the Center for Creative Leadership. And they, they did every kind of personality test on you. They create tests there, I, I swear. They gave you IQ tests, EQ tests, creativity tests, you name it. They did have people videotaping you behind one-way mirrors. You didn't know it. They had a psychologist assigned you with your, quote, personality doing a three-hour tape of you after the week, telling you stuff about you that you didn't know. And I remember that week of learning. That's what flipped the switch. It's mm-hmm. like I came back and I, I knew the minute, it was like three days in, I knew I want to do what these people do. Yeah. I want to come back to that because I think this is a really important uh, experience in knowing you and knowing your journey and kind of how that 
leads you to the work that you're doing today. Before we go there, though, you went away to college, and 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 I want to kind of understand the spirituality, mm. religion. Yeah, I know you grew up in a spiritual household, a religious household. You you went to a religious college, correct? Yes. And and I'm wondering kind of what role did that have in kind of your upbringing and in your kind of young adult development life? Not as much as you would think. Um, mm-hmm. Just like I was going through the motions in school mm-hmm. and going through the motions in regard to like appreciating my parents, you know, appreciating my spiritual life. I was just going through the motions with it. And I saw great examples with my mom and dad. Like they were, they were not religious people, but they were believers. And Mm -hmm. my dad and mom both studied the Bible and they would teach it in a way that was meaningful. They would live it. My dad, (laughs) my mom would get so mad. I remember conversations listening in because dad would refuse to charge these people that were on welfare and, my mom would say, well, I just saw them at the grocery and they were buying all kinds of stuff. Why can't they pay your bill? Mm-hmm. And dad would be like, well, Marie, <laughs> let's not judge them. You know, uh-huh. I, I am here to give them as best of service I can. And if they can pay, great. But if they can't, that's all right. It's not the point. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so like they lived it. Like my, my yeah. dad would, you know, he did, he wasn't in it for the money. He was in it because he thought that was his purpose and that God wanted him to be a great physician. And he said, we never lack for anything. So why can't I treat these people? And he would make house calls. And I went with him some of the dumpiest places in the city. And he'd go in there and just make a house call and people that he knew weren't going to pay him. Mm-hmm. So I saw the examples, but it just went right on by. Mm-hmm. So I had great spiritual mentors in my parents and I just again took it for granted and there was something in me I call it my mom's prayers where I was going to go to Kansas University and I was going to play golf and party and do whatever you do with all my friends it was, would have been great and there was something in me that said hey, I had to check out they've been telling me to go to check out a Christian school and I'd do it I'd give it a go at least so I went on a visit. I went to Wheaton where my sister had gone. They laughed at me. They said, you're 3.0. won't get you. We, we don't need a golfer, you know, with a 3.0. You know, you're not going to cut it. So that was a short visit. And so one of the family friends was on the board at Taylor University, which is another Christian school, kind of a step down from Wheaton. It's kind of like the Wheaton wannabe. And he said, I'm sure that they would be happy to talk to you. And so why don't you go there? They have a great golf team. I know the golf coach. Long story short, I did. And I thought, well, why not? I'll just go for a year. And then I'll transfer to KU. First night there, I met a guy named Barry Crick, who's still a dear friend. And we laughed ourselves to sleep that night. We walked the campus, introducing ourselves to every girl that we could. And we acted like we knew them and the two, and I just had met him and he would go along with my shenanigans. Like we played off each other. He didn't care about being a fool. And we just had the best time that day. And then that night we just laughed to sleep. And over the course of weeks and months, I realized that he really had a faith 
that meant something as opposed to my faith that was just sort of checking a box. And I started to ask him about like, well, tell me more about like, what do you mean when you read this? And how do you see that? And how, how do you know this? And we, we would just start talking about it. And he would, he started to teach me more about the Bible than I'd ever learned because I was actually interested because and like being my parent, this guy was cool. He was my peer. He was my roommate. And he was the first Christian I'd ever met that I said to myself, this dude's cool. The other ones, I didn't want to hang around when they were not like me. They were anything but cool. I was cool. They were not, you know, that's at least the way I looked at it. And Barry was the first one who had a faith that was real. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't stodgy. He wasn't like better than anybody. He was just a real dude with real deep faith. And that's when I started to really study the Bible and really learn what it means to be a Christian and to have faith and to try to love people. That's when I, that's when I got the bug, if you will. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, getting the bug, uh, whether it be learning or your faith or eventually your work as we you know get to that really does come back to a authentic connection there has to be a why or a a practical use you know your parents were living it you know you found somebody that you related to that got you more open to faith you know you you eventually start to learn because the subject is actually something you feel passionate about. You know, that that kind of thread seems consistent and and probably, you know, a really important piece, not just for you, but for for everybody to really um, you know, kind of f- find that that love and that passion and and that, you know, growth, that learning, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, Nietzsche, another dead German dude, was right when he said that he who has a why can bear most anyhow. And as soon as I could connect a why to the learning, then then look out. I'm going to now, back to my mom's determination, uh, my dad's kindness and resilience, I was going to go, I was going to go get after it. I wasn't, once I believed there was a why, half-assing it went out the window. Mm-hmm. I, I'm either all in or I am not. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't go halfway on stuff that I have a why for. Yeah. So that 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 came true. I didn't realize that at the time, but I, I realize it now about me. It's I'm not I'm not very good at doing things. I just I don't do them now at all. I'm either yeah. all in or I don't freaking do it. Yeah. I know that about you. And uh and uh, and I think it's a big part of, you know, who you are and why you're successful. Okay, so before we get to the the center, you you find miss in college too, right? Yeah. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of falling in love in college and and how important that ends up being for you. Yeah. Well, again, it's kind of funny the why. The reason why she was there for summer school was because she didn't get good enough grades to get into Taylor on her own. So she had to come a month early and go to summer school to prove she was a worthy student. 
Well, I did not get a C in operations research, which was part of my major, which was a god awful course. So I ha- and I had to come back at summer school to retake it because you had to get at least a C plus. So we're both forced to go to summer school. And the first day I show up, I stood up at the, the balcony to look down to see if there was anybody of interest. You know, because I'm like, I knew there were going to be some freshmen coming in. I'm a senior. I know every other girl there. None of them had really caught. I dated around, but I'd not had a serious girlfriend since high school. So I was just scanning the horizon and I see this little girl in a little white Izod and gray shorts at the salad bar. And I was like, well, I got to go meet her. (laughs) And so I did. And I asked her out that day. And she didn't know, remember who I was. <laughs> I said, I met you at the salad bar. She didn't remember, but she went anyway. I talked her into going out for a milkshake. Um, and she had a boyfriend at the time. And she dumped him like the next day. Uh-huh. And we became like, I just, I felt something different immediately with her. And there was a different, I mean, I loved her story. I loved I was interested in her, but I loved her story as much as I loved her beauty. And she wasn't an easy read, and I loved that. And so we we fell in love fast and dated all through school, that which is basically a year and a month. And I graduated. She was in her freshman year. She wasn't going to come back. She was going to go back to Columbus and go to another school here or just get a job. She was like, wasn't sure what she wanted to do with that. And she was worth chasing. So I decided, let's not go back to Kansas after graduation. Let's go to where she's from, Columbus, Ohio. And so I did and got a job, got engaged, got married a year later and been here ever since. Mm. How many years? Well, we've been together 40. We, it was 1980 when we began to date. Mm-hmm. And we've been married for 38. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yes. Okay, so so you land here in Columbus now. And, and, you know, I can't help but to just, like, take a step back and think about, you know, faith and, and kind of the, um, like, magic to all of it, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, that you, you didn't get a C plus, you know, and so you had to take that class. And by the way, she's in it too. And, you know, just kind of how that brings you to Columbus. I mean, it all seems so kind of, you know, in a, in a broader kind of harmony and, you know, perfection um, that, you know, could only be divine, you know, in in my belief and Mm -hmm. I know yours too. So it's just kind of neat to hear that. And I know that that's kind of how it continues to go. You, you, that first job, is that first job CompuServe? Is that right out of the gate? No? Okay, tell me your first job then. Okay, well, I could tell you this story for an hour because it's <laughs> such a classic. So I played golf through college. That was my big interest. I knew I wasn't good enough to make it on the tour, but that was what I loved. So. When I got out and decided I wanted to come here, I hadn't gone to any career fair on campus at all. I hadn't done one 
all the stuff that they give you to do to companies coming in, I blew them all off. I wasn't going to any interview. I didn't want to wear a suit. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, but I got this girlfriend and I know I have to provide. And so I'm like, computers are just starting to take off. So I get out and I come here to Columbus and I'm like, talk to some of my buddies and they're like, you know, the best place you could go is IBM. They are the place. They have this great training program and they're the dominant force. They are the company you want to work for. I said, all right, good. I'll go interview with them. <laughs> of course, this is like 80, 82, 80, somewhere in there. This is 1981. 81, yeah. Interest rates are 14% and nobody's hiring. IBM is hiring, but they've already filled their class out for their new hires. And I'm not even, I didn't even interview with them or anybody like them on campus. I just cold called the branch manager until I get him on the phone. And I said, uh, hey, I'd like to work for your company and you, you would like to have me. So you don't know that, but if you just give me a little time, I'm pretty sure we'll reach an agreement. <laughs> this guy was just like, how did you get a hold of me? And I said, I just keep calling you. And so he agreed to let me come in and do an interview on a day when they were starting their training program with all these other schmucks from schools. So I show up at the IBM lobby, downtown Columbus, and everybody's in a suit, the dark blue. They're, it's like their day one, you know? They're in their suit and they're white and their tie. I show up in khaki pants, a blazer, and like a blue shirt. You know, I look like a bozo. They're all getting the job. I'm in there for the interview. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm interviewing. What are you doing? He's like, well, we're, we're starting. And there's like 25 of them. And I'm like, well, you guys look alike. <laughs> 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 and so um, Miss, my beautiful bride, who wasn't my bride yet, we'd set up the night before coming up with, what the heck are we going to do to make them remember me? And I said, uh -huh. I, I got an idea. She goes, oh, that's a good idea. She goes, I'll help. So we stenciled out these two huge art uh, papers. They were like cardboard paper. And on the one we said at the top, IBM Corporation needs, and we wrote out all the things they need in a new salesperson. So we bolded out like 10 things that they, they need. And then on another sheet, I said, Chester Corporation and possesses. And then I listed out all the things that I have that would fill those needs. <laughs> and she, oh, man. she drew it up in this like beautiful artsy <laughs> calligraphy. It looked like something out of the 60s, like a hippie had put it together. It was so uh -huh. freaking magic. And I get this big art cachet. It's like triple a, uh, the size of a briefcase. All these other guys have their little leather briefcase. I welcome this big thing of art. And I go in there and I did like three interviews and everybody, but I wasn't going to show it to anybody except for the main dude. Um, they all in the interview said, well, what's in there? And I said, uh, don't worry about that. Just ask me your questions. <laughs> so I get, I get to the main guy at the end of the last interview. And he goes, starts off, he goes, well, what, Chester, what is this? And I said, don't worry about it. And I said, ask me your questions. Let's get through your interview. And then I'll, I'll share that with you at the end. So he goes through his interview and whatever, and, you know, wants to know why my grades weren't better. Why I didn't take more computer classes? You know, I had nothing. Uh -huh. I didn't, yeah. didn't know anything. 
And we go through the whole thing. And I mean, I'm sure it was a bomb interview. And we get to the end and he goes, well, I really, Chester, I really would like to see that. So I pulled it out. And before I showed him the IBM thing, I said, well, tell me, what do you guys look for? And he rattles mm-hmm. it off. It was almost like verbatim what I put. I said, well, here's what I su- suggest. Does this make sense? And he goes, mm-hmm. yeah, that looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, well, what are you looking for? And he rattles a bunch mm-hmm. of things. Well, here's Chester Corporation. Here's what we've got. And I'm walking <laughs> through them. And I'm like, uh-huh. I'm like, do, I mean, that looks like a match. Yeah. yeah. It's like, when can you start? And I'm oh, that's great. Yeah. It's like, and I'm like, <laughs> I got the job and they fired me a year later because I didn't score high enough on one of their computer tests. Huh. And so, I mean, he bought the thing. He bought me. I was yeah. being hired to do sales. They fired me literally a year later. And I told him, I, and I, I asked, I want an exit interview with Jerry, with the main dude. And they're like, well, he uh-huh. said, no, you tell him I am demanding an exit interview. I'm, I'm not leaving without an exit interview. So I got one. And I walked in and he started off by saying stuff. And this is just, again, this shows you just a little bit about like my belief to the point of brash. And I said, no, you don't need to say anything. I said, I've already got another job. And I just wanted to tell you that you're going to regret this that there's going to be a day when you're going to come trying to sell me on you. Mm-hmm. And I said, I just wanted to tell you that you're making a big mistake. You should uh-huh. have come with your gut. The artist that you got excited about is the same guy. Yeah. And so I walked out and you'll have to ask me sometime later about that story. Cause there's a, yeah. have you, have I told you that one? I think so, but, but uh, go ahead. Talk, tell, tell, tell us the rest of the story. Well, 10 years later, he's nearing retirement and I'm vice president of sales for this company that I'd left there to go. And uh, we're a big potential client for them. And they come literally making a sales call to try to sell us their big year. And I, we were totally, I was, you know, I wasn't holding anything against them. But I went up to him when we met and we shook hands. I said, it's really good to see you. I said, I knew I'd see you again. And it just was, it was like, I didn't rub it in his face, but I know yeah. he knew. Yeah. And, and it just made me, again, I just, I was such, it was like, I wasn't rubbing his nose in it, but man, I wasn't walking away from it. Yeah. And, yeah. But there's a lot there that's really interesting. You know, uh, one, I mean, you know, it says a lot about kind of corporate culture. And I still think, you know, there's a lot of that in our society and business, you know, and just how people group think, you know, what they think they're supposed to do, you know, the the kind of um, rules of the road kind of thinking, you know, well, everybody has to have this score. Everybody has to take that test. You, you can't see kind of, you know, outside the lines in certain environments. And yet, like, he saw it, he hired you, and yet still kind of fell back into the kind of corporate culture or the group think or the traditional way. I mean, that that kind of strikes me as well as your uh, belief. I mean, you know, to walk in there, no tie, you know, not looking like everybody else, with you know these poster boards, you know, know. lugging that around. I mean, 
you know, the, 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 you know, it's clear. And, and even then, you know, to walk back in for the exit interview and say what you said, like you had a certain amount of confidence, belief, core strength, mm-hmm. uh, you know, along the way that really has always guided you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And took a long time to build the corresponding humility, which is why mm-hmm. that's the second essential because mm-hmm. it took a lot longer to build that. And, um, and it's a never ending building process, but it's, it's why, like, I love working with people like you and the clients that we work with, you know, I, all of my work now today is with privately held companies. And the big reason behind that is because they can do what they want to do. They don't have to listen to everybody has to look like this. We have to get quarterly results like that. We can't do this and invest in our people for the long term because the board won't approve that. Or, you know, I I love the fact that our clients, our built to lead clients, are they're just some of the most open people on the planet who still want performance, but they're so not the norm of just judging the book by the cover. Mm-hmm. And I just think we really we need to really preach that. And because we miss so many great opportunities when we only hire people that look like us or people that believe like us or people that act like us. And it's Mm -hmm. distinct and deeply connected is the oneness that we're supposed to be building in this country. And we're not going to all see things the same way and that's all right. But far too often we have business people and just leaders in general that that can't tolerate that, can't accept that. So I love the fact that you're just the opposite of that. And mm-hmm. that's perfect alignment. Yeah. Yeah. So so one of the things that I've seen over and over again with you and your work that I think really does get people's attention and and you know kind of validates your ability to coach is that you had experience in in kind of pretty much everything you're coaching. So so I know a lot of that experience really came in the CompuServe days, mm-hmm. that that was like a phenomenal period in time in your life. The learning was endless. You know, I know you eventually get to the Center for Creativity mm-hmm. and, and I want to, you know, kind of hear more about that. But try to talk to me a little bit, share share with the audience a little bit about kind of how you would summarize the CompuServe days, what that did for you, and and kind of also how that really does give you the kind of uh, credential, so to speak, to do what you're doing now. I, I, how many hours do we have? Yeah, we're good. Just you know, we're gonna we're gonna move through this, but. You know, tell me, just kind of highlight the CompuServe experience for starters. Well, Miss and I had our first son, Jordan, when I was 25. She was 22. That same year, I was promoted to my first management position at CompuServe. I was the youngest manager in the company. We were a technology startup, young, but I was super young. And I remember. My boss, as he told me, good luck. It was, there was like zero training 
It was just like, good luck, you're a manager now. Don't be afraid to tell older people what to do. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, well, that's good advice because everybody in here is older. <laughs> Some of them were like my dad's age. And I was just like, okay, well, I could have used a little more coaching than that. But So you kind of just learned. You just were thrust into it because it was really like a glorified startup. And you just, I just learned by doing. And I just remember as a new leader, all I did was try to go make everybody better. And I just didn't know any better. So I just helped them do their job. And I just came alongside them, asked them what they need. If they were in technology related, like engineers, I didn't know anything about the engineering, but I would just go in and ask them questions. Hey, I understand you guys are swamped. We're freaking selling like crazy. What do you need that you're not getting? And I would just ask. And if they told me something that made business sense, I would say, well, tell me more. And they would tell me more and I would go, and that makes really good sense. Why aren't we doing that? Well, our chief technology guy can't get the budget approved. I'm like, hmm. and so then I'd go to the CEO and I'd give him a business argument back to Victor Klotz. I'd give him an argument with, here's the sales. Here's what we're not getting because we can't install it fast enough because we don't have enough engineers. And he'd be like, that's the stupidest thing ever. Let's do it. Next thing you know, I was getting these people what they needed just because I would just go ask them. I didn't know how to lead anything. I was just trying to help people. And as I did that, the thing just kept growing. And so the offices that I was working just kept growing faster than the other offices. So the, the, the ownership, which was Henry Block at the time, he owned our company, and our CEO just kept giving me more. And so I would just, I, I remember calling my mom. She said, Chester, every time I talk to you, you're getting a new job. I'm like, mom, I have no idea why, but they keep promoting me. And, and our business is growing and, and it's great and it's fun and I'm learning and traveling and I'm learning about these different, how different it is selling in the Northeast than it is selling out West. And soon we're going to be going overseas. That'll, I mean, it's just really fun and I don't know why it's happening, but it is. And I remember one time telling her, here's what I have learned is most of these salespeople are liars. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, the biggest thing I've had to do is just teach people to tell people the truth. And I'm like, that's all I do is go around asking people questions. So that try to understand what do they need? See if they're being truthful and if they have a good argument. And then the other thing is I just get everybody, I fire people who lie to customers. And I said, I started off firing a lot of people because they were lying to get deals and wasn't helping us. So I just started a training program where I just teach these salespeople to learn the product, study it, become a master at it, and make sure that whatever you're selling, it makes sense for the customer. They had better have great value in whatever we give them or they won't last. So don't go selling bad business. I don't want to, I don't want to be in and out of clients. I want us to get clients for a lifetime who see us as a valued technology partner, which means we got to know that what we're selling them, it makes perfect sense. And so I just learned that truth is such a fleeting thing. And it was like, not hard. I said, mom, this is not hard. I'll never forget this one. I told her there was this client, Adria Labs. I'll never forget it. I met with the CIO. I was a new manager. Went out with the salesperson and it was a terrible fit. And I told the guy, hey, look, I'm sorry, we're wasting your time. 
we can't help you, but I do know who could. And I gave him the name of a couple of our competitors who I knew had a service offering that would work. We didn't particularly, we didn't have it. So I just told him, I, and the salesperson was like, well, that was a waste. And I'm like, no, that was not a waste. That would not have been a good client. You, you want to tell them the truth. We can't help them. That guy's name was Jeff Winslow. Now, the biggest opportunity in our branch at the time was this company by Jim Truman. It was called Red Roof Inns. They were a startup. They were just killing it. They had an indie car, and I thought that was cool. And they were building Red Roof Inns all over the place. They had a reservation center. I knew our network could help them. And I kept sending people in. Nobody could ever get through. They would never talk to any of our guys. They weren't embedded with one of our competitors. I knew we could help them. They wouldn't listen. You know how the story ends? Yeah, I think so. Jeff Winslow calls me like a year and a half later. And I'm like, hey, how's it going? And I said, how's Adria Labs? And he said, well, I don't know. He goes, I left there last week. I took a new job. I'm like, oh, yeah. He said, yeah, I think you could help us. I'm like, well, where are you? And he goes, Red Roof Inns. Yeah. They, yeah. they became a customer like the next day. They became our biggest customer that year in the entire company, not just in. Yeah. And I just remember yeah. thinking, that is what I was like, yeah, how this is not that hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the thing is, is that it was not that hard for you because you were doing this your way. And, you know, whether it be like how you did the interview or, you know, how you kind of moved around um, and up through CompuServe, you know, what I'm, what I'm kind of hearing is that, you know, when we get back to the kind of the question I had around like the credential, um, this is actually a conversation Katie and I have had a number of times because I kind of go back and forth where, and I'm hearing that in your story, where I do sometimes find it to be really helpful to get advice from somebody who's walked in my shoes. So when you have the corporate experience, the, the high growth tech experience, the management experience, the sales experience, HR, and you're in talking to me about my business, I know you've done all those things and I feel like that's helpful. But the funny thing is when you were doing those things, you had actually never done them before and you were doing them in a really unconventional way um, and just kind of following your, your, your intuitive and, and also like the things that had been baked into you from your parents, you know, from your faith, from your belief, from your life. And you were leading with that, which is kind of why, you know, I sometimes will argue you don't have to have walked in somebody's shoes as long as you can teach how to lead somebody for who they just really naturally are. And, you know, you, you've kind of done both. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think you're right. It does help to, I mean, it does help to have that experience that credentializes you with practical wisdom but it's there's so many people that have lived a long time had lots of jobs and they've had great experiences but they haven't they didn't build a strong core they didn't have a clear sense of who they were and why they did what they did and it wasn't becoming conscious to them and so 
they had all this stuff, but they didn't learn from it the way I've watched you learn from the experiences that you've had. So I always tell people like, hey, don't look for somebody with a lot of experience. Look for somebody with a lot of learning from whatever experiences they've had. There's a big difference. And the best coaches, the best builders, the best leaders are the, are the learners. And, and they've even learned from other people's experience. They've just learned from everyone and every. I just kept learning from all these people that I didn't know what they did, but I just learned from them. And then I was like, okay, that makes sense. Let's go do that. I mean, you just mm-hmm. have to be committed to being a learner. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, what I, I'm thinking about, you know, kind of uh, just reflecting actually, as you're saying that when I started Kaufman Development and, and you were there for every hire from day one, I mean, you know, for those that don't know, and we can kind of talk to, uh, talk about Built to Lead, you know, as we, as we get a little closer to that. Um, but, but I was uh, working at another company when we met mm-hmm. and um, you started coaching me there. And when I uh, took the leap and started Kaufman Development, one of the things that I remember us talking about and me really wanting to do from the start was not hire anyone from inside the industry. Yeah. And, and, and we didn't. I mean, yeah. every person we hired came from retail or drug sales or, you know, pharmacy, whatever it was like, re, you know, there, there was nobody there that was a lifelong apartment person. Yeah. And it was more about culture, you know, uh, passion, alignment, um, you know, ability to, to learn, interest in, in, in personal growth. Uh, that that you know was really kind of at the heart of the company right from day one. No doubt, no doubt, and yeah. you knew what you wanted, yeah, and you had real clear about the kind of spaces that you were going to build and the way that you wanted to curate them and serve them, and so you went looking for that. I just remember that, and. Mm-hmm. As the business grew, all of that just did a natural evolution. And it's been such a fun thing to to be a part of and to just watch. Yeah. Yeah, well, and we've had to course correct too because there is some skill that uh, it does does help too. Um, You know, as you've kind of taught me passion, skill, effort, Mm -hmm. you know, is kind of that balance. But let's let's go back to the, the center. Um, and, and, you know, as, as I had my jumping off point, uh, opus, you know, and built a lead language to start Coffin Development, you had yours uh, leaving CompuServe and starting Built to Lead and the Center for Creativity, that experience was really the catalyst for that, right? Yeah, it was. And uh, it was 1993 when I went to the Center for Creative Leadership, and that was the catalyst I knew in that week that I was never going to leave CompuServe to go to a competitor. In fact, I told our CEO, I said, I knew it when I got back. I said, I'm going to leave you to start my own company. We're going to build leaders. I just don't know when, but I'm never going to leave to go to one of the competitors to erase that worry. And we had a very transparent relationship where he let me go pursue my passion and as long as I, quote, kept my day job. 
So I started the CompuServe Leadership Institute kind of on the side. And I just started reading and devouring. I mean, that was when the learning just went into overdrive. And that went on for nine years through the WorldCom merger. And that CEO was long gone. And I wouldn't leave until 2002. And I'm glad I didn't, even though the reason I didn't leave was just because I was just scared. It wasn't an honorable reason to stay. I was just too afraid to go. But by staying, for all the wrong reasons, I got to learn the most about leadership by learning and seeing what not to do. And I swear that I've used that learning more than the the first 16 years of my leadership trajectory was just like up and to the right. I learned the most from watching Bernie Evers take this thing down and and seeing a front row seat to really, well, at the time, it was the second greatest financial collapse in the history of American business. Think about that. Only behind Enron was it, it was, it was a unbelievable destruction of wealth and trust and commerce. And I got to, I was literally right there. And yeah. It, and, 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 you know, I'm kind of interested in, you know, we talked about kind of the, you know, perfection in all of this, how <laughs> things are happening, you know, in this kind of divine perfection or, or right on time always. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you're describing that you got to see this collapse, right? And learn all the things not to do. That's right. You know, I, I had a similar experience in, in my banking experience, not a collapse, but I, all of those jobs, I got to learn what I wanted to do, what I didn't want to do. Right. Both, you know, maybe, maybe not what you, what you don't want to do, maybe even more valuable. Mm-hmm. But, but you also mentioned fear mm-hmm. and that you were afraid to kind of take that jump too. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it, that's, that's kind of, um, stands out because you don't demonstrate a lot of fear uh, so far in this story, you know, uh, not with the gangly big kid that sits down next to you, right? Not with the exit interview, or, you know, not not with, you know, kind of doing things differently. You know, what was it, you know, and, and I know, you know, maybe this is like a press field thing or, you know, maybe there's like, you know, I, I don't know exactly what it was for you, but why was it when you got so close to something that you really felt so lit up about that that you that that fear did kind of hold you back? It's not very hard to understand. I was, I hadn't been out on my own, and I didn't understand how freeing Opus could be, so I hadn't experienced it yet. I just dreamt about this is what I want to do. But I was very clear about this company that I'm with has been paying me a lot of money for a lot of years. And they bought me a membership to one of the finest clubs in the world. And they pay for everything. They give me stock options. They gave me stay put bonuses. Um, They have taken care of me and my family. And when I jump out the window and go on my own, I I will give up all of that. And so it was a very normal reaction to just being fear-based, thinking purely about money. And the meaning, it was there, but it was, Chet, don't get carried away. You know, I mean, 
meaning is great, but you can get meaningful. You can give to the church. You've been doing that. That's meaningful. You can separate this work and life and keep your meaning over there. But remember, like you, you've been gifted. This would be like looking a gift horse in the mouse. What are you? You don't want to walk away from this. So I was having these arguments with myself, even though I was miserable as the work was winding down. And my wife was telling me, why don't you jump? What are you waiting for? We'll be fine. We don't need any more money. I just don't want to see you doing something you don't believe in. This is not the company you joined. My wife had way more courage than I did. She was pushing me to stop the madness and don't worry about it. But money was in the way. It was the fear of, I don't think I have enough, which is why I coach so many of my clients so hard about this fear because I know it. And I believe when you pursue opus, the richness, the reward of the meaning trumps it. Mm-hmm. It, just, it just eliminates it. And so yeah. you'll, you'll be fine. I've yet to have anybody that I've worked with over almost 19 years of doing this who have chosen to pursue opus, many of which meant leaving a very established, lucrative family business or career. And they jumped out the window to pursue opus. I haven't had the first one, not one, who has written me or called me and told me that was the dumbest thing. They fired me because they crashed and burned on the way down. Not, Not a single one. Everybody has told me, why didn't you push me quicker? Mm-hmm. You know, why did you not let me jump earlier? And and then, of course, there's you, who I tried to keep inside the confines of your building, and you jumped out and said, see you later. <laughs> well, you know, I do think it's an important piece because, you know, you, you really do um, – coach people on opus mm-hmm. right and, and and loving what you do and having a, a a work and a and a life that that is combined aligned as one and you also don't push people out the window you know you you really have always said don't jump without a parachute mm-hmm. um, you know you have you know challenged poked holes tried to hold you back you know you want people to only go when they are absolutely on fire right right like i remember you saying and i've i've kind of used this a bunch that you know you either jump because you're on fire or because you're drowning right it's one or the other and and you know i i think it's an important point to emphasize because it's not a careless thing no you know that that's why you didn't go sooner because you did care about your family mm-hmm. and your stability and your life you know, enough to want to do that, you know, when the time was right. Timing does really matter in all of this. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And my conservative nature comes shining through my Dust Bowl depression script that I never went through, but that I memorized because my parents went through, which is where we started this. That does, that that's still in there. And, um, you know, I can afford to spend money today in a different way um, than, than I ever imagined. And yet I still find myself going to miss, yeah, we don't need to do that. Let's mm-hmm. not do that. But, and, yeah. and it's, so there's a conservativeness to me and deeply rooted in me that it comes out in my coaching. I'm always, 
I want my client, if they jump, I, I want like almost certainty that this yeah. is going to be great. And so I make sure they have real shoot in their eye and they have really good argument. And they've really thought things through. They have a good plan. I just, again, I, I take it, I probably take it to an extreme. Um, but then there's always people like you that don't listen anyway and mm-hmm. just go flying out the window. And that's good too. Yeah. Well, well, let's talk about Built to Lead a little bit more. You know, obviously, you know, as I've said, it's been an instrumental part of my life, you know, making that jump and really getting to experience Opus and, and really kind of, you know, more than that, just learning who I am, mm. you know, kind of filling those integrity gaps and learning how to connect with people and the relationships and build trust. I mean, the, the lessons have been endless. And, you know, I, I should say kind of in the spirit of that, you know, divine perfection that we've talked about, you know, my, the way I found you was in a, in a YPO forum. Um, YPO was something that a mentor told me I should join when I thought I wanted to get an MBA. He said, no, do YPO. And you walk into this <laughs> forum because you are um, a coach of, a, of a, a guy in my group a guy at the time I'm not even really that close to or don't even really know that we have as much in common as we do. We came from very different backgrounds. I did not know what a coach was. Never that was like, you know, something that that you know was reserved for sports. Mm-hmm. And you come into the group and when you leave after we spend our session together, our practice together, uh we go around the group like we always do and see what people think. And I went last and the entire group said, I hated that. It was terrible. You made us look at each other in the eye and ask questions and you couldn't talk. If you had a thought, you had to just listen. It was brutal for these dudes. Mm-hmm. And it got to me and I said, I loved it. I, I don't really know what this guy does, but I want to work with him. It was just kind of like a, it felt like it was just the thing that I needed at the time. And I didn't really know why or what it was, but it was coming to me and I knew it was right for me. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk to kind of the audience, like explain Built to Lead your way. I want to hear kind of your explanation of what it is that Built to Lead really does and why it's unique. Yeah, well, you're... I mean, you're a poster child, so I hope your audience, if they know you, then you're like, you're like a poster child for, for Built to Lead, that the aim of our work is to, is to build, and we're builders, and we build individuals, teams, and leaders with the aim of oneness. The aim is to build each of us more whole. And then us as a community, as a company, as a sports team, more whole. So that we can be distinctly who we are and deeply connect with ones distinctly very different. And so the whole aim of Build to Lead is to build oneness because oneness is the heart of high performance, whether that be for you and your individual life or you and your company or you and your family. You and whatever, that when you study the history of humanity, 
that is what we're all aimed at. And that's where chemistry, that's where high performance lives when we just feel like we're fitting together hand in glove. Um, and so we do that by helping our, we first start with the person who's the head of the system, CEO, the head coach, whatever it might be, and getting them to look within and figure out like, who are they? What do they believe? Um, what do they stand for? Why are they here? Where do they want to go? So figuring out, as we call it, your built to lead core. It is what holds you together, just like your literal core is what holds your physical plant together. The stronger your literal core, the more likely you are to stand tall as you age and not suffer from lower back pain. So you need to have a strong physical core to keep the plant of you standing the test of time. Same thing is true for your figurative core, your BTL core. So that's the first thing we do is we help clients. They have to do the work. We just have a framework that we're kind of relentless on making them do what they can to discover the hardest thing in the world, which is just who they are and then to just be who they are, wherever they are, with whomever they are. So that it doesn't matter if the head of IBM or the, the little person down the hallway that's, uh, that does have no power over you, that they're... You can be who you are no matter where you are and whom you're with. And you're just, you're just the same. You're consistent. So we help people, our clients, build their core. And as they do that, they get that strength. Then we want them to get clear on, I believe, we're designed for an opus, which is a Latin term that means for a labor of love. And that we're not designed to labor in vain. We're designed to labor toward our worthy aim towards something that we are called to or drawn to that we can't even resist. And so we help them author an opus for their work and for their life. And as they build all of this stronger over time, and it takes a long time because the hardest thing to do is be who you are. Hardest thing. And most humans never discover it. They, they, they constantly, they die living something to please others as opposed to really being who they are and making their peace with their place. So we want our clients to be strong in their core, be who they are, aim at an authentic opus that they've authored and run at it with their whole heart, with their playbook of productive action, their pop. Because if we don't get what we want by just being who we are and dreaming big, we have to then follow that up with consistent, hard effort so that we can learn to do hard things well, like you have. And and learn to find the joy in that and in bringing others along. And so as we help our clients do that and they get clarity on their work opus, their life opus, and their core, that they become more one. And pretty soon they don't know which is which. They are just being who they are, doing whatever it is they're doing. And they don't know if it's work or play. As Chateaubriand said so well, they just are being who they believe they're meant to be and contributing in their community, what they're called to, to contribute. And it's just like a beautiful thing. And so yeah. that's, what we, that's what we build. And mm-hmm. we have clients like you that, that we've been building like that for years. And it's just, I don't know, it's like the greatest thing in the world. 
Yeah, it it really is a beautiful thing that, you know, master of the art of living, you know, not being able to tell which is which and and you know, letting others decide, you know, mm-hmm. and and that's just paraphrasing. But but you know, it's a very it's a very uh well that that quote, you know, was one that uh still hangs over the front door of our office and was in every community we built and mm-hmm. really struck a chord with me. Yeah. Because it there's there's something about that experience um, to just, and it was, you know, back to the kind of the things that I didn't like, you know, when I worked at the bank and everybody had to do certain things and lunch hours were at a certain time and you wore a certain outfit and, you know, you took your vacation and you did the things you wanted to do on the weekends. And, you know, it was, it was um, an experience where I felt very separate my work and my life were very separate and it bothered me. And I didn't know that anything else was possible. Um, it just was what I, I went right into work. That's what it was. I, I didn't ever have any exposure to anything else. It just felt uh, like this couldn't be the rest of my life. And And so, you know, like I had no idea that when I was going to work with you, that that would be the thing that we were going to do because I didn't even know it was the thing, mm-hmm. and and learning that that that's possible, and then and then having that experience, you know, in work and life, is really such a beautiful thing. It's been such a blessing for me, and and getting to then watch you do that work for other people, you know, I I, I think wow, like it's so it's such rewarding work to watch people's lives transform in that way, you know, it's like you're, you're getting as much as you're giving, you know, it's really a, it's a, it's a pretty, you know, awesome. It's an awesome gig you've got. Yeah. Well, as Jesus said long ago, that blessed is the giver because they receive more than they give. And as, as you do this good work, and your heart is just to give people the gift of just figuring it out. You give them a framework, they have to do the work, but you just pour yourself into helping them just to be a catalyst for them to wake up and you challenge them and you get to be there as they transform. What you receive from that transforms you. And so it's as you've experienced yourself. So it's just truly, it's an amazing thing. And I don't mean that in a way that, is squishy and soft. It's actually, it's it's hard opus to to awaken, challenge, and transform together with people very different than you. And and it you have to be open. You have to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to learn from people very different from you. You have to be able to tell people hard truth, and they may not like you. Patience. And you have to have patience because everybody goes at yeah. a different pace. And, yeah. And but it's just like the greatest thing in the world. Okay, chat. Where I've probably kept you longer than I should. Okay. Um, but I want to talk about speaking of patience, your book. Okay. You um are releasing a book which uh I am so happy you are doing and mm-hmm. I have had the chance to read it. And I love it. And I've been reading it for 
uh, years now <laughs> because you have been writing blogs mm-hmm. uh, daily. I don't know for how long, but I want you to talk about the book and I want you to talk about what it is and, 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 and kind of how it's come to be. But I also want you to talk about writing and the both kind of the writing you've been doing with your blog and the kind of practice of that. And then also the experience of the book, because the book is something that I have seen you challenged to do in a way that I haven't really seen you challenged much. You know, <laughs> you, you, you're, a, you're, you know, you've kind of been doing this core work for so long, you, you kind of know how to do it, you know, like, you know, stepping out of bed, you know? So this was something new and it's, and it's hard and it was challenging and you're not alone. This is a common experience for people that write. Mm-hmm. Uh, so talk a little bit about kind of the blog and the book and kind of the challenge and all of that. Well, I started writing the blog in 2006. And I did about seven posts a month when I started. And I've just ramped up because I, I did it because a client told me they wanted to have something to read in between our practices. So I did it to appease a client. And about two years in, I realized this is not for a client. I'm writing for me. And I just began to write what I'm learning every day. So I just started to make it a daily ritual. But I would write something down. And then I started publishing more and more of it to the point now where I almost publish something on the blog every day that is just a reflection. It's just a way to cement my own learning. So I write for myself to bring more clarity to my work and my life. And if anybody else garners something from it, that's like the bonus. But the writing has just brought clarity to me. And so one of my good friends, clients, and someone who I coached through a great change, a transition out of the ministry towards something even more meaningful, which is, which is very hard to even say, um, but it's true. And he's now the one publishing. Well, he's been bugging me to write this book for years. And, and I finally agreed to do it because he told me it would, I've already done it. The blogs are all written. Well, and I've told this to his face, PJ is a liar. And this was really difficult and really hard and took me years to rinse the 3,500 posts down to 365 days that each was a self-contained unit with more of a punch to it than what I originally wrote them to be. And so I wanted to write this book in such a way that somebody that didn't know built to leave could read this thing, do the productive actions, the challenges at the end of each day, and would have a shot at really catching the built to lead fire, the built to lead bug without us building them. So I was like, man, that's, that's a, tall order because this is very personal, spiritual, emotional work. I wasn't sure it could be done. I didn't just want to write a book to write a book. Like I had no desire to do that. And so it's just been a constant culling effort. And the 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 daily posts have gotten smaller and smaller as I basically on average rinse these things four times to get them into the book and then to get them right. And 
Then we did a book design that I wanted to make sure it looked like the beautiful playbook. And so again, PJ said, that makes no sense because you can't charge for that. And I'm like, that's perfect. I don't want to charge for it. I just want this to be opus. And if it's going to be opus, it's got to have, it's got to have the look and feel of built to lead. It's not going to be a black and white book. And so, so I'm really excited about it because it represents a labor of love and it was hard opus. It was not easy. And, and, um, so, but it's been, I think, really rewarding. I think I've, I used one of the days, day 338, I used yesterday in, in practice, six, practice 49 with one of my clients out of Chicago. And it was probably the best practice we've ever had. And I used that post because it was the perfect post for what that team was going through with their merger. And so, because it spoke to exactly that. And so I hope to use it with our clients as another tool that we can go deeper with them. And I hope to introduce people that would never be introduced to Built to Lead to this concept by 365 of these very meaty 350-word thought-provoking posts that will hopefully stir their thinking. Yeah. So I I think it's, uh, there's a lot, you know, that I love about kind of how you've structured this book, including the kind of the daily aspect of it. And certainly you can plow through it at your own pace, but the kind of bite-sized mm-hmm. chunks, you know, there's some really meaty stuff there, as you said, and, you know, trying to to digest it really, you know, too fast, too much, you know, kind of one thing a day I happen to love. And, and, I, and I love mostly that it's just done your way. And again, you know, you've kind of shown over and over again, you know, that that's how you live and Mm -hmm. that's how you work. Mm -hmm. And that's the point of Built to Lead. And your book is going to be the same. And like you said, if it's the big wig at the end of the hall or the, you know, person, you know, at the other end, either way, you're the same, your book's the same, your practices are the same, your blogs are the same. And this is, this is just you. And that's, how you express you into the world. And, and to me, that's kind of like, if you learn anything, you know, that's it. That's, right. that's the, that's, that's it. That's it. And so that's all we want the reader to walk away from this as a catalyst for them to figure out their way and then just go be it. And, um, you know, when we talk about great leaders, I, I wrote this in, in the eight playbook. And it's just like most of this, it just came to me in this weird artistic way as I was trying to figure out the paradox that I wanted our clients to understand that, that we see too many historical leaders as my way or the highway. And these were very strong, tough leaders and they had real clarity and, but it was fear-based and it was like, they had real clarity with the highway. This is it. And if you didn't like it, there's the freaking door. It was my way or the highway. And I just remember one time when I was thinking about what do I want to put in the kind of leader we're building? And I remember just thinking, it, here it is. It's more of an and. So I want my, my readers to feel that I want them to be curious George, which means if they don't know the way, they get curious and they say to the engineer, hey, I don't know much about engineering, but what do you guys need? And they get curious and they say, tell me more. That's Curious George, and my way is the highway. So when they see the way forward after they've talked to the engineer and they've 
ask good questions or whomever it is. They go to the CEO or to whomever else and they go, let me tell you, I think we need to do this. And here's why. And it's my way is the highway. And if they have a better way, you would you go, oh, great. Okay, I see it. But if they don't, you invite them to your highway. And humans resist the either or. It's a natural thing. When I've studied humans, they don't like it's this or that. But when it's anded, when it's Curious George and my way is the highway, and you're not jamming it down their throat, you're inviting them to something that is a highway and they connect to it. All you need is a few that will follow your way and you will have a great ride through this work in life with a few believers who are not just like you, but they're enough like you that they align, that you'll have great time laughing and yucking it up as you do hard things together that are, that are worthwhile to you and your few. And so that's the gig. Um, yeah. It's a good gig, and it's been a, a joy to be along for that journey with you. And I know I've told you many times, but I'll publicly thank you again for the impact you've had on my life and the experience that we've had in going down this uh, journey together. And I am so appreciative of you and, and all your builders and what you guys are doing. And for you taking some time to do this, you don't do this, but I know you did it for me. And I'm really excited about the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want you know our audience to buy it. And, and mm-hmm. I know that people are going to really get a lot out of this. Um, it's a really great way to, to get to understand and get the learning of Built to Lead without having to be a client. Yeah. So and, Chet, any final thoughts? Yeah, yeah. give me a good and. Final yeah. and would be, and they will get to read one of our local celebrities took time out. He didn't have to do it. And he took time out away from all these busy projects that he's quarterbacking and captaining to write a little bit about his builder's journey, which they will be able to read in the book. And it's yours truly. Uh-huh. And the best part of the book, in my mind, is there's these 12 builder's journeys that start each of the essentials, or if you were to think each of the months, start by just somebody like Brent and Derp, another local dude, and Grappy, another local dude, telling their story like we've done today in 90 minutes. They tell a very condensed version of their story, and they're all so cool and inspiring. and. You know, if you get the book, start by just reading those because it will give you the inspiration to then take it just a day at a time. Read those, binge read those, because that's all just like pure inspiration. Read those right out of the shoe. Then go back to day one. And I would challenge the listener to remember, life is best lived a day at a time. Read the book a day at a time. That's what it's designed to be just like life. Take it a day at a time and then put something into action that day that you learn and play around with it, experiment. And then tomorrow, get up, be grateful, open this thing up and take tomorrow that day at a time. And before you know it, you will just be feeling some juice 
and energy and each day you'll be feeling a little more core center and a little more clear about aiming at an opus. That's how it happens. It's a day at a time. So that's good stuff. Chet, Chester, <laughs> Chester, Eugene, <laughs> Scott, the second. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been really um, a joy to have you retell your story to me, but hear all of it. And I'm sure it'll mean a lot to other people. And just thank you. Well, thank you. It's together we transform. That's the ending line to our purpose. So thank you because together we have transformed. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.